are listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. My name is Logan. I have uh, the amazing opportunity of serving here as youth pastor at Real Life on the Palouse. And every couple of months, uh, Josh and the elders asked me to put down my crayons and my Crayola markers for long enough to come up with a message. And so today, that's what we get the chance to do. Just like Annie said, uh, we are going to be continuing on in our series, Not a Fan. Uh, This is actually based on a really awesome book by a pastor named Kyle Eidelman that came out way back in like 2009, centuries and centuries ago. Uh, If you've never read it, I would encourage you guys to to go check it out. But basically what we're doing is we've been asking ourselves the questions, are we truly followers of Jesus? People that when the rubber hits the road, we are willing to give our heart, soul, life, mind over to Jesus, no matter how difficult it is, or are we just followers? People who like what Jesus says, but when things get maybe too difficult, we kind of back off a little bit. It is a very hard question to ask ourselves, but I think it's one that we need to ask. And so if you haven't joined us for the last several weeks, I wanted to give you a quick little recap of where we've been uh, and also pointing to where we're going. So past couple weeks we've walked through, we have talked about uh, how Jesus has an open invitation for every single one of us. Uh, The way that Josh worded it a couple weeks ago is that uh, Jesus has his cards on the table. He is making it very clear who he is and what following him entails. We've talked about what it means to actually build intimacy with Jesus. We've talked about how the cross that we follow is something that we sometimes try and make a little bit more comfortable, even though it really isn't always supposed to be comfortable. And we're going to continue this conversation, but first I wanted to share with you guys a story. Uh, This is a really cool story that was shared with me actually by our worship pastor, Greg. And it's so cool if you've never heard it. It's really, really simple. Uh, A long time ago in a monastery way up in the mountains was a group of monks. And these monks, uh, day after day, they would gather in the open courtyard of this giant monastery for a time of quiet prayer, meditation, and just general calmness, right? And there was one monk among them who had more authority than the rest. And he was in charge of this whole time. And he had one goal, to make sure that this time is calm and peaceful and serene. That's a good goal. Uh, They only had one problem. And that was that the monastery had a little bit of a pest issue. There were mice everywhere. And so a cat had moved in uh, to take up residence. This is what I imagine in my mind. How many of you guys are cat people? Oh, you are my people. Uh, But a cat had taken up residents in the monastery. And at first this was good. The monks were like, oh, this is great. We finally have something to solve our pest problem. Uh, But they started to notice that when they gathered for their their silent time of prayer and meditation, the cat was, um, there's not really any other way to word it. The cat was really noisy. And so they would sit there and they they would try and have their silent time and the cat would just climb all over them and make a ton of noise. And so they tried to throw the cat out, but the cat would always just come back in. So then they moved their silent times from the open uh, into a, a separate room, but the cat would just keep showing up and just keep scratching on the door. And so finally, uh, one day, the leader of the monks, he just got so fed up that he was like, no, you know what? And he told the other monks to go grab this cat, tie it up, bind it, and throw it in the corner. <laughs> and so for the first time in weeks, the monks meditated and prayed in silence with a cat tied up and bound in the corner. And the next day, they were like, that worked pretty well. We should do that again. And they realized very quickly that this solution was kind of foolproof. And so they just kept on doing it. And they did it so regularly, actually, that one of the monks, uh, they delegated a specific job to him of, hey, before our, our quiet time, I need you to go wrangle the cat and tie it up, right? And they just kept on doing this over and over and over again, okay? 
And as time went on, as time typically makes happen, uh, the cat eventually died. And for the very first time after this cat passed away, the monks sat there in their quiet time and they found it really hard to pray and to meditate without a cat tied up in the corner. So they just went and found a random cat and tied that one up. It wasn't noisy, it was just a random cat. And they just kept doing it, not because they necessarily needed to, but because that's just what they always did. And so more time passes, and eventually the monks themselves start to die, and new ones take their place. And each time they gathered, they found a cat, tied it up, bound its mouth, not because the cat was disruptive, but that's just because that's what they've always done. And so centuries pass, and later the scholarly descendants of these monks, they write long academic treatises about the importance of tying up a cat and what it's ne- how necessary it is for a quiet prayer life. <laughs> now, this is just a story. It's silly. If you like cats, it might be horrifying. But I think the truth is, is that a lot of us do this when it comes to our faith. Our very relationship with God is dictated on the rules and the regulations and the commands that we think we are supposed to do, not necessarily because that's actually what we're supposed to do. And most of us mean really, really well. I I feel like I mean really, really well most of the time. We want to follow God as well as we can, and we think the best way to do that is to follow the commands that he's laid down before us. But over time, we kind of lose sight of what commands were actually God's and what things we do simply because we've just always tied up the cat. We pray before meals, uh, not because we actually have anything to say to God, but because we're worried we might choke on our food if we don't. (laughs) We tell people, hey, you know what? You should read your Bible. You should really get to know what God is saying. Well, our Bibles are at home, and they have been collecting dust for a very long time. We sit in small group week after week, and we don't actually get into the nitty-gritty of our lives, because if we do that, there might not be time to get through all the questions, and we can't have that. Rules. Rules, 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 rules. And most of the time, they don't really have any good origin, or at least they're really, really flimsy. And so my question for, to start us off today is, do you feel worn down? Do you feel worn down from having your faith and your relationship with God be based on nothing but rules? Do you feel like religion is getting in the way of your actual faith? And maybe are you just now realizing that you have spent your entire time in the church focusing on the regulations you're supposed to follow and the commands you're supposed to keep that you never actually met and got to know Jesus? If you feel like that, don't worry. Jesus felt like that too. Uh, All throughout scripture, we see this over and over and over again. Wherever Jesus goes, he does really, really cool stuff. He heals people. He raises them from the dead. He gives food to the hungry. He brings hope to the hopeless. And every time he does this, there is a very large group of scoffers that follow follow behind him. And they go, "Uh, did you get a permit from the city to perform that miracle? Uh, Did you make sure to ask the town council if you could distribute all of this miracle food? And they scoff over and over and over again. And most of the time, the people that scoff at Jesus and make all of these statements are not just normal people, but they're actually the religious teachers of Jesus' day. We see this all, so the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, over and over again. Very rarely is it just normal people going up and challenging Jesus. It's the people that are supposed to be like the, the followers of God, the truest followers of God. And most of the time, it was a group called the Sanhedrin. 
So if you've never heard of what the Sanhedrin is, let me break it down for you. Uh, The Sanhedrin was a group of about 70 or so very learned, very academic men, both in the Jewish and just the basic community uh, within Jesus's day. And their job was to sit down and gather regularly and and decide what was and was not good for the people to do in the eyes of God. That's good. It's good to have people that have a knowledge of who God is come regularly talk about how are we supposed to live life? How are we supposed to do this? That's good. The problem is that there are two very distinct groups in the Sanhedrin and they did not get along. They had ultimately the same goal, but they had very different ideas on how to get there. And so on one side is a group called the Sanhedrin, or called the Sadducees within the Sanhedrin. And they were a little bit more liberal when it came to interpreting the scriptures, when it came to what this is supposed to look like. And then on the other side is a group you might have actually heard of called the Pharisees. And they were far more conservative when it came to interpreting the scriptures. And these two groups butted heads all the time. They could never agree on anything. And I was sitting here thinking, I was like, okay, this is, this is a good thing to understand. It's something that we've have to pay attention to from a long time ago, but how can we put this in our context? And so I was like, what's something in our day that we can compare this to? And I don't know, what about the United States Congress? How about that? A group of very learned individuals who have ultimately the same goal, but very different ideas on how to get there. (laughs) Do you see the similarities here? The only real difference between the Sanhedrin and Congress was the Sanhedrin dealt with uh, what did God want us to do and the Congress dealt with more like public politics. I also have a feeling the Sanhedrin war like suits and ties a lot less than Congress. But the truth is, if you want a good example of what it means to just be a fan of Jesus and not actually a follower, just crack open your Bible and look for any of these religious teachers at any point. So the religious leaders within the Sanhedrin, the important thing for us to note is that they had a lot of knowledge about God, a ton of info about him. They were really, really smart dudes. They knew a lot of great stuff about God, what he said, and how we are supposed to conduct ourselves. But for some reason, they stood in almost direct opposition to Jesus every single time they interacted. So when Jesus showed up on the scene, he would talk Uh, Yes, he would talk about the rules that God had for us and the commandments we were supposed to follow, but he would always do it within the context of grace and mercy and love. And the Sanhedrin and the teachers of the law, they would show up and they would every single time try and turn public consensus away from Jesus and back on the rules. They had been focusing on the rules for so long that they had a really hard time separating the, the hammer of authority from the love of God. And so Jesus addresses this uh, very thing to the crowds. He's like, okay, we need to talk about this. And so in Matthew 23, Jesus gets a large crowd together and he, he talks about this very thing. Starting in verse two, Jesus is talking and he says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you to do. He starts off by saying, these guys, they're smart. They know a ton of stuff. They have really good information. You should definitely listen to them. They have authority. But then he continues on and he says, but do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassel garments long and they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. 
They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. And then Jesus turns his attention to the crowds that he's talking to. And he says, but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. But, uh, and you uh, do not call anyone on earth father for you have one father and he is in heaven, nor are you to be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Messiah. And the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And Jesus gives a very clear warning. Hey, these guys, you do not want to be like these guys. And he follows up this already kind of aggressive crusade against the teachers of the law uh, with this section that you might see in your Bibles titled The Seven Woes, where Jesus just goes through And he says, woe to you, Pharisees and teachers of the law, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers, you snakes and liars. And he just starts listing all of the ways that they are not doing it right, the ways that they are missing the point. And it's really important here to note that the section that we just read, Jesus is warning the people. In the seven woes, this is not a warning. In the Greek, this is written, and the word woe is, doesn't have this connotation of just like an exclamation. It's not like, hey, stop doing that. It, it's a condemnation. He is looking, and he's saying, hey, you see the way that the Sanhedrin does stuff? How they're so focused on all of these rules and regulations, and they're not paying attention on God. He's like, we're not doing this. We're, we're nipping this in the bud right now. But to be fair because that we have to think logically. To be fair, let's think about this from the Sanhedrin's perspective. From the teachers of the law perspective, from their point of view, Jesus is the one in the wrong, right? They're thinking, well, you know what? I know a ton about what God wants me to do. I have all of the knowledge. What does this carpenter's kid know? What the heck is he doing here? And most likely they are thinking, God gave us very clear commands. And the best way that we're supposed to live and operate is by sticking to them above all else, nothing else. And they felt this conviction so strong that what they did was they actually put up an extra barrier of rules around God's commands to make sure they didn't break them in the form of what we call fence laws today. So we have this really, really cool graphic. The idea is really simple, and it's actually not that bad of an idea. In the middle is God's commands. These are good. These are holy. These are things that we should absolutely follow and make sure that we keep. And The teachers of the law are so worried about this that they made a bunch of extra laws and regulations around God's commands. And their logic was, well, if we break one of those, then we haven't broken God's commands. The idea is really simple, but over time, it kind of lost its point. So let's give an example. Uh, One of the biblical commands, one of the things that God said to do, is don't work on the Sabbath. That is a great command. That is something we should absolutely follow. And so the Sanhedrin thought, all right, let's put some extra rules around don't work on the Sabbath. But in order to do that, they have to first define, okay, well, what's work? And if you're curious of how they're defining work, don't worry. The fence laws have you totally covered. In fact, there are 39 different regulations of what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath according to the fence laws. I just want you guys to take a second and look at this. Carrying, burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking. Like, there's a lot of these. When you look at this, are you overwhelmed? Because I am. And beneath each one of these definitions of work is sub-rules of what you can and cannot do within those specific things. And it started out really, really good. They wanted to honor the Sabbath, but eventually it didn't become about not working on the Sabbath. It became about all of these extra laws. 
And suddenly they have these strict regulations like, on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to walk more than three-fourths of a mile. Do you not have any food at your house and the closest market is a mile away? Too bad, looks like you're going hungry. Is your ailing family member a mile away, close to death? But you can't walk there because then God will get mad at you, right? Do you guys see the problem? They took the commands of God, which were good and complete, and they just started adding all of these unnecessary things. There's actually a really uh, simple, we can talk about it all day long, but it's really cool to see stories of how this worked. And in the book of John, there actually is a story. And it's shown in how Jesus interacts and heals with a blind man. And so in John 9, there's this uh, story it recounts Jesus. He's walking along, and he sees a man who has been blind for his whole life. And Jesus thinks, this is a great opportunity to show the power of the kingdom of God. And so he goes up to this blind man, and he says, do you want to be able to see? And I can just imagine the blind man being like, yeah, why would you ask me that? (laughs) Of course I want to see. Jesus goes, okay. And so he spits on the ground. Seems really weird, but it makes sense in a moment. He spits on the ground, he makes some mud. He takes this mud, he wipes it on the blind man's eyes. Super gross, but if you're blind, I mean, might as well try something. And Jesus says, I want you to go to this specific pool and I want you to wash off there. And when you do, you'll be able to see. And the blind guy's like, all right, I got nothing to lose. So he takes his spit mud covered eyes and he walks to this pool and he washed himself off. Voila, he who is blind can now see. And this man is astounded. He is ecstatic. He, he, he's been blind his entire life. He's seeing colors, trees, the sky, his own hands for the very first time. And he is excited. And everyone who knew him is confused. Weren't you blind? How can you see? And they were so confused that they took him, of course, to the Pharisees and to the teachers of the law to try and get some clarification. And so in John 9, uh, we read this starting in verse 13. It says, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. And the Pharisees just start bickering and arguing because you see the fence law stated you could spit on a rock during the Sabbath, but you can't spit on the ground because if you spit on the ground, that might make mud. And if you make mud, that's a kind of mortar and mortar is a kind of work and we can't do that on the Sabbath. And so they're arguing back and forth about, well, geez, this Jesus guy doesn't keep the Sabbath. And the story goes on and the blind guy's sitting in the corner and he's like, hello, I can see. Is no one paying attention to this? Why are we talking about Sabbath laws? And it seems so silly. But the truth is, all of us do this exact same thing every single day. We live in this state of existence where we know that the God above not only cares for us, but actually wants to be in relationship with us. And all we can seem to focus on is things like, are we reading the right Bible translation? Is the church down the road playing their music the right way? Hey, that person who's been attending fairly regularly, have they started tithing yet? And we look at these stories of the Pharisees and their focus on all of these unnecessary rules and we think we're better than them. We think if, if Jesus was here today, if I was in their same shoes, I wouldn't fall into all of that silliness. But in reality, you guys, our history tells a very different story. 
And the farther I look back, the more sad I get, because the truth is, is that if you look back over the centuries, the church and believers' relationship with the rules goes in this very repetitive cycle. Followers of Jesus that are passionate about him, about his way of life, the love and mercy that he offers, when they start to focus on the rules, this cyclical pattern starts to form over and over and over again. And he who does not review history is bound to repeat it, so let's look at it. What's this cycle? So we'll start with where we're already at. The Pharisees are here, and they've got all these fence laws. And the idea behind it is solid. The, The logic behind it is good. They want to do the right thing but they've messed it up over time and they're just focusing on, on the rules. And so then Jesus shows up and the entire New Testament is Jesus just shaking the foundation of all of this and being like, no, it's not about this. It is about God's mercy and redemption and grace. And then after the gospels, when you dive into the book of Acts and you see the formation of the very first Christians and how they gather together in the church, they do really, really good for a while. They're generous, they're kind, they are loving, and they embrace everyone with an open hand. And they do a really, really good job. And then time passes. And the church gets more power. And more people come through the doors. And suddenly there's a lot more money involved. And you fast forward. And by the turn of the century, the all-powerful Catholic church has come up with this genius concept that they call indulgences. And the idea is really simple. For a small fee... You can come to your local parishioner, and in a very specific transaction, you can buy a ticket into heaven. And just like the Pharisees, the idea started with the the best of intentions. But over time, the message became very clear. If you want salvation, it's going to cost some coin to your local church. And we're right back where we started. Focusing on the rules, and not even the actual commandments, just the extra things we've made up on top of it. And so a guy uh, by the name of Martin Luther, you might have heard of him, he, get, he gets really fed up with what the church is doing. And so what he does is he takes it upon himself to put pen to paper, and he writes every single way he can think of that the church is absolutely hell-bent on following, Jesus, or following the rules instead of Jesus. And on October 31st, 1517, he nails on the church door what we call the 95 Theses, and in that moment, the Protestant Reformation is born. By the way, small, small fun fact for you guys. If, some, if you've ever heard someone say, uh, oh, I'm a Protestant or I come from a Protestant background, we as a church actually come from Protestants, that literally means in protest of what the Catholic Church was doing. Just a fun little fact for you guys. I don't know if you knew that. And for a while, things go really well again. The Protestant Reformation takes off and we start focusing for a long time on the actual things that God says, how he is calling us to live, this love that he is offering And then you fast forward, and 500 years later, we are sitting here. And the current estimate, though there are disputes, is that within the world, there are somewhere between 300 and 47,000 different Christian denominations. 47,000 different Christian denominations. Every single one of these in disagreement about some rule or regulation of faith, so much so to the point that we are in such opposition that we have to make logos to differentiate ourselves from each other. (laughs) You guys, we are more afraid of the rules now than we have ever been. And this cycle makes a very, very clear point that fans, or sorry, followers who focus on nothing but the rules, will always become fans again. 
And we shiver in the fear of what our traditions and regulations will do to us if we don't follow them. And while we do this, our actual relationship with Jesus is being wrung at the neck. Have you felt it? This feeling that there is so much more to the life that Christ offers. He says that he has grace, yet the rules make it very clear that if I sin publicly, my fellow Christians won't have any grace for me. The, the, Jesus says that his love is unconditional, yet when someone misses Sunday maybe a, one too, a few too many times, our love suddenly becomes very judgmental. And God says he wants us to care for widows and orphans. And the very first, rule that the, question, the very first question that the rules ask is, should we do that? They might just use that money for drugs. And I have a theory. Based on what I've seen in just my own few short years, I've noticed that there is a fairly consistent constant in why people follow the rules the way they do. For the most part, people who focus solely on rules and regulations and traditions do so because of one of two reasons. And the first is very simple. It's because they want to win. Their, their mind says, you know, if there are rules, then that implies that there is a game, and that means that I can win. And so some of us follow the rules of religion simply because we know that if we keep them close enough, if we tiptoe that line of the rules that we're supposed to supposedly follow and don't pass it, then we'll win and we'll get a ticket into the pearly gates. And for a lot of us, I think we diminish the importance of our faith because we think that if we just keep the rules hard enough, we'll win. And that's one reason that I think a lot of us do it. And the other reason is on the total opposite end of the spectrum, And it's that we are so afraid of what will happen if we break the rules that it is keeping us absolutely oppressed. We've heard about things like hell enough times that we are afraid that if we break these rules and traditions, then we're going to lose the cosmic game. And the stress of that is simply too much to bear. Better just focus on the rules. No matter which side of the camp you fall into, the result is always the same. Your relationship with Jesus is just a shadow of what it's supposed to be. If you feel like this is not the way that you're supposed to be thriving in this world that God made for us, that there is more of what this is supposed to look like when you are a follower of Jesus, then you are right. If no one has told you this before, I want you to be able to hear it right now. If you have been carrying around the burden of feeling like you can't live well enough to please God, or you have been worn down by the guilt and the fear of religion rather than faith, then Jesus has this to say to you. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And there's a really interesting truth in this passage, more so than we see, because the Greek that this is written in, uh, the word that we translate as weary is this word koptos or kopto. It kind of depends on how far back you go. But this actually isn't its first definition. We translate it as weary and toiling. That's not what it originally means. What this word originally means is to strike. It means to hit something and apply a sudden and forceful blow. Brutal interference with an item's natural course of action. It means to be hit so hard that you get knocked off course. And Jesus is looking at each and every one of you and he is saying, come to me all who are tired and worn out. All of you who feel like the world's obsession with rules and religion has knocked you off course from where you know this life is supposed to lead. 
All of you who have been stuck and battered by tradition, come to me and I will give you rest. And it's important to note here, guys, the rules are not bad. Jesus never said they were bad. In fact, he said the exact opposite. In John 14, he just straight up says, if you love me, keep my commands. The commands of God are designed for our prosperity and for our health. I don't want you guys to leave today and think, oh, the pastor just said that I don't have to go to church. It's all just, it's all just peace and love, man. That's not what I'm saying. God still has a very high standard of how he calls us to live and how that life is supposed to look in comparison with the rest of the world. The problem is when we miss the point of what the rules are for. The commands of God were never slapped down to keep us in line like a spiritual lapdog. The rules were designed to show us God's heart, what he cares about and what he wants us to care about because of it. And the other reason the rules were made is to show us that we were never supposed to measure up to them in the first place. They were supposed to show that we are not going to be able to reach that bar, not without the radical and unrelenting grace and mercy that Jesus has for us. And too many of us, I think, look at the rules and see it as a bar that we're supposed to hit to get into heaven. And that was never the point. The point was always to show us that we were never going to hit it because we're not perfect, but Jesus is. And because of that, so can we. There's a really cool uh, verse in the book of Micah where we see uh, a scene where God is, this happens a lot in the Old Testament, where God is getting very frustrated with his people because of this exact same thing. And so we read in Micah chapter six, it says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. He's saying, I have given you resource after resource after resource. What? And it continues on. And it says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with, a, with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You guys, it was never just about the rules. God met us in our brokenness over and over again and we kept meeting him by saying, okay, what rule do I need to follow? What regulation do I need to meet? What guideline do I have to do to fulfill and to please you? And God just keeps kneeling down and he goes, no, you don't get it. It was never about blind obedience to a list. I want your heart He says, I've always wanted your heart. And I tell you this now, you guys. When you decide to actually live your life as a follower of Jesus, as someone who is willing to give your heart, your soul, your mind, everything over to Jesus, when you truly decide to live a life following Jesus, the rules kind of take care of themselves. And we, when you start living in the beauty of grace instead of trying to earn it with a white knuckle grip on every single rule, then eventually you realize that those same rules that you thought were a shackle to shame are actually the tools and resources you can use to live life abundantly. When you actually follow Jesus with your whole heart, then suddenly the rules are not these burdens you have to carry around, but they are resources that you are able to tackle life to the fullest. 
It was never just about the rules. It was always about your heart. And I'm not going to lie to you guys. There is, there's tension here. There is this uncomfortable balance because on one end is the fact that God did give us commands. There are ways that we're supposed to live. We are supposed to conduct ourselves in a particular way. And on the other side is the fact that if we focus on nothing but those rules and forget why they're there in the first place, then we kind of miss the whole point. It is a very fine line. And trust me, I have, I have climbed up in enough ivory towers and thrown enough books at people to know when you are failing at this. So, how do we find the balance? What do we do? And so when the members of the Sanhedrin first started uh, what I guess the only real way to call it is their holy war with Jesus, what they did a lot was they tried to trap him with questions, get him to, get him to trip up, to say something that was unlawful so they would have something to throw against him. And in Matthew 22, we see them do this, but they put their foot in their mouth really hard. And so in Matthew 22, starting at verse 34, it says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with, question, with a question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your whole, heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the real bread and butter, you guys. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And in this, every other rule and regulation kind of falls into beautiful place. You want to be a follower of Jesus and not just a fan? Everything falls into these two categories. And the most important thing for you guys to see here, for myself to see here, is that these two commandments both start with the same thing, love. You want to be a follower of Jesus? Love and love well. And you cannot do that unless Jesus already has your heart. So today for ourselves, we have to ask ourselves the question, what are the ritual cats that we've been tying up day after day? What are those religious, self-imposed rules that you have been letting dictate your faith as a religion rather than as a way of life? Are you trying to be perfect? Focusing so much on making sure that you are holy and perfect that you forget that God actually already is holy and perfect? Are you living as if God is tied to a location rather than to your heart? That you're a good little Christian boy or girl when you show up to church and when you see your Christian friends out in public, but when you're by yourself, you just kind of shed that because why would you need it? Are you doling out condemnation for people who fail rather than loving them? Focusing on the rules so much that when people fail, you loudly ring the bell of condemnation. Or maybe you're focusing on productivity rather than grace living your life in such a manner that it is clear that you view your self-worth on how much you do or do not do rather than knowing that Jesus could really give a rip if your house is clean and if your dishes are done. Fans tie up these cats all day long. But if you want to be a true follower of Jesus, you guys, it's always been about your heart. Let go of the man-made rules that we've got and focus on your heart and everything else is going to fall into place. God's already focusing on there. 
So one of the great places for us to start right here, right now, is uh, with communion. It's one of the most beautiful things we get to do. And so first, uh, I want to say that we here at Real Life, we have what's called an open table. So if you are a, fo- if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've given your life to him, um, if you're wanting to join us, then please join us. If you didn't grab one of these on the way in, there are some awesome guys in the back. Just raise your hand. They'll be able to get those to you. But communion is another one of those. Another one of those things that we slap a lot of extra rules on. And I don't want you guys to do that today. Don't, as we partake of this today, don't do it because it's just something that you've always done. Don't do it just because, well, that's why I'm supposed to do it because every single rule says I'm supposed to. Look at your heart. What is God calling us to do in these moments? Don't let this just be another rule or regulation. Let this be something that you can actually focus on and dive into today as your heart rather than just a rule. So we dive in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. This is what Paul has to say, chapter 11. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's do this today in remembrance of him. Continues on in verse 25. It says, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's do that today. You guys pray with me. God, we want to say that we are sorry for all these extra things we tie up around your love, for all these unnecessary tasks that we feel like we're supposed to do and that we force others to do. We're sorry. And today, God, as we sing, as we leave, as we're driving, as we're whatever we're doing, God, I pray that you would keep our hearts on our minds, not the tasks we have to get done or the rituals we have to perform, God. Where are our hearts at? And when we're not focusing on those things and when we forget and when we let the rules start to bog us down, I pray that you would come and just thump us upside the head. We forget so often and it's the thing that you never stop focusing on. God, you don't want blind obedience. You want our hearts. And I pray that's something that we're able to really truly live out. That it's something that changes us from within and affects the way that we think and the way that we act and the way that we breathe. God, you care about so much more than just the list of things that we get done. Please help us to remember that today, God. We want to be followers, not just fans. Thank you, God. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.